Whoop, whoop. I'm waiting for my cue. Hate to start too early, you know. All right, Acts chapter 1. Tonight we get started. We're going to ease right into it. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, naturally. And then, uh, then we're going to really get going in uh, week 3, bigger chunks at a time. So get excited about that. But we start off with, uh, with quite, a, quite an exciting piece of text tonight. So let's uh, pray and then... We'll jump on in. People will be licking their fingers as we go. Oh, Lord, we come to you tonight, and we are grateful, uh, as always, for this time and this place. And I am grateful for these folks that desire to come and to open your word and to engage with you and with each other and with the movement of your spirit. And we do just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would instruct us and teach us and move in the power that only you have in this time tonight and in our conversations and through the prayers that we offer up with and for one another. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would be with our time, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you, and that it would be edifying to those who are here tonight or watching online. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we are in... Uh, Acts chapter 1, who has a page number from the Blue Bible? 909. 909. 909. That is called a palindrome. Is that correct? Where's Russ when you need him? We don't need Russ. We don't need a rocket scientist to know that it's a palindrome. 909. All right, so here we go. Uh, again, if I start uh, talking about things that you don't know, just raise your hand. Be bold. Pray the Holy Spirit is in, moving in you to be bold. All right. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had call, came together, come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up, by, taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may this camp, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, "'You, Lord, who know the hearts of all,' Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, Acts chapter 1. For those of you who are like, where are we at again? All right, so Acts chapter 1 begins with this intro, and it's very similar to the intro to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is writing this account again to this individual, Theophilus. And it was well known during the ancient Near Eastern time frame that people would write these books for wealthy people or important people if Theophilus is, in fact, an actual person. Josephus is one of his... uh, major works was written to Epaphroditus. The question becomes, is that the same Epaphroditus that uh, Paul is talking about in Philippians, which the youth is talking about tonight? Great question. We're not talking about Philippians, so we don't care. Um, We do care, just not tonight. And so who is this Theophilus? It doesn't really matter. The point is Luke is trying to put together this work um, for this individual and to collect what has been happening. And he gives a kind of a recap of what was happening in Luke. And right out of the gate in verse 2, we start to see the reference to the Holy Spirit and the function of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Holy Spirit occurring a few times in chapter 1, and it has these various roles. So right away in 2, we see the Holy Spirit is um, working through Jesus to instruct, okay? And then... Um, We jump down to verse 5, and the Holy Spirit is uh, a part of this baptism, which we're going to talk about. And then we jump down to verse 8, and the Holy Spirit is a source of power to, to the disciples, not yet, but going to be. 
And then we jump down uh, to verse 16. And the Holy Spirit, interestingly enough, in 16 is working back in the Old Testament and speaking to David about this whole thing with Judas. Now, it's, it's important for us because, again, when we talk about Acts, we have to remember the importance of the Jewish faith that is still very much a part of these people's lives, certainly the apostles' lives, um, the disciples' lives. And so Luke making this allusion back to David, King David, and how the Holy Spirit is not a new concept, but is a concept that has been long a part of Scripture and a part of God's plan. And so um, the Holy Spirit starts to, to be readily introduced or quickly introduced right out of the gate in Acts. Now, we're going to spend a whole bunch more time talking about the Holy Spirit next week, um, but we also are going to talk about it tonight. And so it starts right away with the Holy Spirit working with Jesus to create these instructions. Luke also tells us that Jesus was with them for about 40 days, and it it begs the question, what else happened? (laughs) I mean, like 40 days is not an insignificant number, It's, uh, you know, an extended period of time. Why do we not get more insight into what Jesus is doing during those 40 days? Now, some of you may say, well, Paul does make a reference, yes, to the Corinthian church about what Jesus is doing in one of his letters. But I have this question of why is that left out? And I think because um, Paul, or Paul, Luke wanted us to focus on what else was happening. And so here we see this um, instruction. Jesus orders them to, to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. I mean, three of the most challenging words that exist in the human language. But to wait. Because we are not great waiters. Not that we don't know how to serve tables and bring drinks and refill water and all that. We, uh, we live in a culture where waiting is not really a gift or it's not certainly is not a virtue that is commended over and over. Right? I mean, think about the advent of the microwave. Like, it's basically once the... Everything went out the door once the microwave was invented. I mean, don't quote me on that, but I've just quoted, my, quoted myself online, I guess. We don't like to wait. And Jesus says, I need you to go and stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the promise that the Father is going to send. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And so we know they waited for about 10 days. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about, you know, the whole resurrection thing. And, you know, they, they've been told that Jesus is going to die and he's going to rise again. And they wake up the next morning and he's still dead. And the next morning he's still dead. And they don't seem to be great at anticipating uh, the fulfillment through this waiting process. And so what, what does it look like for us to wait? Not to wait, like, for a table that's going to be, you know, ready. You go to a restaurant and you're like, oh, it's, it's going to be 45 minutes. You're like, I am not waiting 45 minutes. Ugh. Or you go to ship something and you're like, you know, two days free. 
One day, $50. Click, $50. Right? No? <laughs> and all the frugal people said, can I get a no? <laughs> but some of you were like, you're right, $50. I'm paying it because I want it right now. How well do we do in waiting for God's activity to come to fruition in our lives? And what are the things that we can do to help facilitate the posture in which we wait? Because it's one thing to be forced to wait, and then it's another thing to have this posture in which we wait with anticipation and patience and calm, and allow ourselves the time and the process to take place so that in the waiting, there becomes this transformation into who God desires us to be. Because I would contend, the longer we wait, the more impatient we typically get, and the impatience often is a reflection in my own self of a lack of faith about God actually coming through on what he said he was going to do. And so when we move into this posture of impatience, I think we could substitute impatience for lack of faith when we are waiting on what God is doing. And just imagine that. They spend 10 days, and we don't know what they're doing in 10 days, Exactly, we know some of the things which we're going to talk about, but they're spending seemingly 10 days all together in one room. I mean, that, yeah, so you're like, oh my goodness, no. What would that have looked like? And so when we think about God's activity in our lives, and we, we pray for something, or God seems to tell us, like, this thing is coming, it's going to come to fruition. Are we willing to wait? And are we willing to wait in a way that our posture is that of believing in faith and saying, yes, God, I know that you're going to answer this prayer. I know that you're going to come through, and I trust. And so in my trust, I can be assured that I don't have to become restless to the point of impatience in my waiting. Just like that. So easy. Except it's not. I was thinking about it today. You know, it's like, all, no one's, hardly anyone is impatient for winter to show up. No one in, in November was like, very few people in November were like, oh, I can't wait for it to start snowing, for it to be sub-zero. Carol was. Okay, I know there's a few people, but the vast majority are like, yeah, I mean, if, if winter doesn't ever want to show up, I mean, I'm okay with that. And then it snows once, and we're like, okay, when's spring coming? It's January 10th. Spring's got to be right around the corner, isn't it? We just are not patient in our waiting for what God is doing or pretty much anything else. I mean, I was literally at home making scalloped potatoes and ham. I know it's going to take an hour, but at 45 minutes, I'm poking it with a fork. I'm like, come on! <laughs> and what is going to happen in Jerusalem? 
And it's so interesting because Jesus reminds them about John baptizing with water and that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, it's interesting. (laughs) Uh, I know this is not pretty much a shocker to the vast majority of people. I often, on Wednesdays, listen to the Holy Post when I'm setting up uh, chairs and stuff. And Scott McKnight was on today talking about his new translation of the Bible called the Second Testament. And he's the author of the book that's this month's reading group book, Shameless Plug for Reading Group. Um, And he was talking about how he translates John the Baptist. And he uses John's Greek name, and then he calls him the Dipper. And I was like, genius. And then he goes into this whole thing about why he calls him the Dipper and how he could have called him John the Plunger which would have been pretty hilarious, right? Because this idea of baptizing is this idea of immersing an object in the water. And baptism was a thing within the Jewish culture, and they would baptize themselves, and they would do it as part of a ritual cleansing. And so when we think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit— we think about this total immersion of the Holy Spirit on our lives, which is going to happen, spoiler alert, next week. And so we'll talk about what, what do we, how do we conceptualize of the Holy Spirit and how do we conceptualize of the complete immersion of the Holy Spirit upon us? Because when that happens, Jesus tells the disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And I so often think in in the tradition that I grew up in, you know, as Francis Chan famously coined in his book, The Forgotten God, the Holy Spirit for many folks is not something that we talk about. It's just not something that we address because whether it's the mystery of it, you know, this last month uh, in December, we talked uh, in reading group about Mary and how we conceptualize Mary, which we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. But oftentimes, we, certainly my tradition that I grew up in and the tradition that uh, Timberwood is in, we have found ourselves reacting against various Holy Spirit theologies and ne- ignoring the power of the Holy Spirit because other people have Uh, you know, Pentecostals and that sort of thing, are so into the Holy Spirit, seemingly. But what we have here is Jesus' words about who the Holy Spirit is and the function of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit immerses an, an individual who is a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a power that comes about with the Holy Spirit. And so when we receive the Holy Spirit, it's not just like a little misting, It is a complete and total immersion, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when that baptism happens, it comes about with power. And I think of it so often, uh, like I think about the old action figures. Maybe there still are action figures. I don't collect them anymore. Um, But it used, or maybe like you were more of a Beanie Baby collector. And it was like, well, we got to keep it in its packaging. Because I, I tell you what, this Dan Marino figurine went number 13 on the Dolphins. This thing is going to pay for college, along with my massive collection of, of cards. So we got to leave it in the package. We just leave it on the shelf. 
How often is that the case that what, that's what we do with the Holy Spirit? They're like, Holy Spirit, got it? Thank you. On the shelf you go. That's like for other people to talk about. And what we're going to do in Acts is we're going to talk about it because the Holy Spirit comes in power and immerses us and should result in some serious things. And it may even result in some amens. I'm not, I'm just speculating. I'm just speculating. So Jesus reminds them that the Holy Spirit is coming. Wait for it. Wait for it. It's coming. And when it comes, it is going to come in power. But notice where the disciples' minds are at within this conversation. So they come together. I mean, Jesus has just been resurrected. You know you've got a short period of time. And one of the questions they ask in the 40 days is what? When do we get to be in charge again? When are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? But what did Luke just say that that Jesus has been speaking about? The kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel. Scott McKnight translates it, the empire of heaven. Which I was like, wow, interesting. They want to know about earthly power and earthly position. And Jesus is like, oh, my beloved disciples, you just don't get it. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And again, I know we've talked about this many times. These are the words of Jesus Christ. If we are disciples of Jesus Christ, here is a clear instruction that we are to not fixate on times and dates and events and how they fit together. It's just not something that we as disciples are supposed to do. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. They are to be focused on spiritual things and on what? On how they are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And again, this is this imagery of this shotgunning out of starting in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And so it's this projection of the gospel that it's going to be going out through the, uh, through the book of Acts. And what, oh God, Siri. Clint, what is it when it's during a, te- when a teaching? I mean, it's not 20. It's like, is that 100? That's 100. Golly. This Apple Watch has cost me about $500 in meetings. It's, is it worth it? And it's not even a watch. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Boom. Yes. Amen. (laughs) That's right. Jesus tells them what are they to be doing when they go out into all these areas. They are to be witnesses. They are to be witnesses. And what does a witness do? testifies to what they have seen. One, one interim, I took mock trial. It had nothing to do with my major, but it was super fun. The court case was a dog that had been bit in, the, in someone's yard, and I think I was the defendant. Uh, I was the representing the defendant. I was the lawyer, 
And so you, draw, you call witnesses because witnesses can testify to what they have seen. Amen to that. Yes. Who bit the dog? I don't remember. I don't remember. That was a long time ago. And it was interim, and you don't really take a class in interim that really means much. That's like time to just kind of ease back into college life. You know, you don't want to rush into anything. Plus, the, the teacher was one of my favorite professors, Beth O'Toole. Loved her very much. Um, still do. So anyways, what do these witnesses do? They testify. And what do they testify to? Things that they have seen or experienced. They don't have to have a whole lot of other knowledge other than the things that they've experienced. And that's why it's so important because the, the addition of the 12th person that's going to replace Judas is somebody that has been with them this whole time, has experienced what Jesus has been teaching, has seen the things that they've seen, has seen the resurrection, and, and he qualifies because of his experience. And so the question becomes, what are the things that we witness about Jesus? And are we willing to share those? Because this is not additional information beyond what they have experienced. They are to go out and to witness, to say, this is what we've experienced. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. This is what Jesus did. And how do we know that? Because we experienced it firsthand. And one of the major roadblocks that, that we experience in our lives around testifying to who God is, is, well, I'm not sure I'm going to know what to say. Can I get an amen to that? What if they ask a question and I don't know the answer to the question? You do what I do. And you say, I don't know, or that's a great question. Let me ask you another question. That's what Jesus did. That is why we have this thing called faith stories. Because in a faith story, it's not complex. It's not new. It's not, it's not something that we often even have learned in, uh, as LeVar Burton says, take a look in a book, right? It's just, this is my experience of who God is and what he has done in my life. And I can only witness to the things that God has done in my life or that I've experienced directly. And Jesus is not asking them to be these great orders or to do anything other than to go throughout this area to the ends of the earth and to say, this is who Jesus is and this is my experience of him. And that's what we are called to do as disciples. What if I, what have we experienced? And we share out of that experience. And oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit's going to be there and is going to come in power. And then Jesus disappears. He goes into heaven. And this interesting thing that I, if you're interested, I'm curious about it. Watch the number of times when angels show up in Acts and what the angels are doing in Acts and how they're functioning. Because remember what happened at the beginning of Luke. Angels showed up, yes. What else happened at the beginning of Luke? We had two people who were in the temple, and what were they doing? 
Waiting, yes. Remember Simeon and Anna? They're like, we have been waiting our whole lives for Jesus, for the Messiah to show up, and here he is. And then Luke starts Acts, and he's got his disciples, or he has the disciples, and they're waiting. And so we see this interesting overlap between Luke and Acts, and we're not going to keep retreading on Acts, but I think it's important for us to take a look at. So they go, and they return to Jerusalem, and they go into the upper room, and it's the whole lot. Luke gives us all their names. And notice this. Now, the ESV threw me for a total loop uh, today because I know not all translations say uh, the one accord part. So it just kind of threw me for a whole loop, but we'll deal with that. He says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. One of the most important things about the early church is how they committed to being together. Physically being together. And when they are together, what are they doing? They're praying. They're praying. They're praying for each other. They're praying for for God's power. They're certainly, they are steeped in Judaism, so they're praying the prayers. We talked about a little bit about that last week. And so when they are gathered together, they, it's not that they say, okay, um, now's the time in our day when we sit down at the table where we say a prayer. Like, okay, ready? Now we sit, then we pray, then we eat. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. And it's this idea, this commitment beyond just passive engagement or rote engagement. This idea of being completely devoted to this practice of prayer. And they're doing it together. And, and if, if one of the allergies that exists is uh, around the Christian life is sharing my testimony because what are people going to ask me the question? What, are, what about the questions they're going to ask me? The next probably, if we were to play Family Feud, we already played it once today, um, top five fears uh, of a follower of Jesus in a group. Number one, sharing your testimony. Ding, yep, okay, survey says 55 people said that. Number two, yes, bing! Number two, close behind 35 people praying out loud in front of other people. Ah! Some people love it. This is what they did. And this is what it means to be a part of a group of disciples, a body of Christ, to gather together and to pray for one another and to pray out loud together. And I know last week we just had, last Sunday, well, last week we had a question about praying for each other, and then Sunday we had the prayer service. And so we're, we're kind of on this prayer momentum that hopefully we can continue to roll together and so again, tonight we're going to talk about prayer. How can we pray for each other? And, and, and I've told this story before, and when I first started here, I, it, 
I had this, it was like this mental block. And somebody might call in and they would, I would answer the phone and they would say, could you submit a prayer request uh, for me? And I would say, yes, of course. And I would write it down and I would say, have a great day. And I would hang up the phone. And the Holy Spirit, who's named Marcy, is like, what are you doing? I can't believe that you're even a pastor that you act like that. <laughs> well, when they come out of your mouth, <laughs> it's easier to find out. And then I'll be like, oh, why did I say, oh, let's pray right now. And a few weeks ago, we had some friends over at our house, and they were, they, we were sitting at the table, and they were just pouring out some things that were going on in their life. And I was like, let's pray right now. And I'm sure they were like, really, like right now? Can't you just like do that in your quiet time? Like just tell us you're praying for us? That'll be good enough? No, we're praying right now. And Nikki's aunt and uncle, they are the best at this. Every time we're around them, you're like, okay, we're going to leave at 7. And then I, I say, okay, we got to leave at 7. So then I say, Linda says, what time are you going to leave? We're leaving at 6.45. It's like, I thought we're leaving at 7. We're going to leave at 7 because at 6.45 when we go to leave, Linda's going to say, we're going to pray for you right now. And I'm like, why are we not like that? That's what the disciples are doing. They're gathering together. They're in communion with each other, and they are of one accord, the ESV says. And the interesting thing is this is where it's starting. Spoiler alert, the one accord thing kind of goes away. But what does it look like for us to devote ourselves ourselves to prayer and praying for one another. And each week, you know, we have people that stand up front and we have people that stand in the back and we, we say, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. And so how, how can we commit to this, embodying this reality of praying together on a more regular basis? That is a question that is just burning so deeply in me and I want us to ask that question of each other. And notice who is there. I know it's not a big step for me to jump on the soapbox. And I, I, I so I'm not going to just in control. It's like Animal, you know, in the Muppet movie. He's like in control. <laughs> who is together? Yes. Women are there and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we had this very fascinating conversation last month at, at reading group and perspectives on Mary. It's a collection of essays. Uh, Beverly Gaventa is the main editor. And, and we've had this tendency within, certainly, um, certainly in the Protestant streams where where we don't give Mary her full due from the biblical perspective. Now, I'm not saying we, we, we have to become Catholic in our view of Mary. I'm absolutely not saying that. We see the importance of Mary as a key disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke chooses to walk us through the story of Jesus with Mary constantly in the story. She's obviously at the beginning, <laughs> kind of had to be there, but she's also right at the end. 
And she's all through the middle. And then we start Acts, and there's Mary. And it's not just Mary. There's all these women. The women, how many, we don't know. The point is they are so important that they are in the story and they are held within the discipleship group as important. And important in Luke and important in Acts and important well into the church. And we're going to see women throughout Acts play key, key roles in how God is moving the church forward. And we cannot miss that and we cannot ignore that. And, yeah, we have to, to recognize the importance of these people. Notice Luke chooses to use names at certain times, and at other times he chooses to be more general. And in this point, he wants us to know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an important person in the early church, and it will continue to be. And then Peter stands up to do this thing. Now, uh, notice again how many people are there. 120. (laughs) Now, we think about the upper room, right? Probably not a huge room. Imagine if all of us were like over here in a much smaller space. Some of you are like, and I found the door. (laughs) Think about the energy, though, that would exist in that room and the anticipation of what's going to happen. We're all gathering together, and the Holy Spirit is like right on the cusp, about to be there, and they've been praying together, and and then they do this thing. and Well, they talk about Judas, and it's, it's sort of confusing. It's like, why is this account different than other accounts? Why in the world does Luke need to go into such detail about Judas's death? You know, you're like, are we back in Judges? Some people still have nightmares about being in Judges, right? It's like, what is even happening? And I think most of it is because he wants to get in the importance of the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And so it's not necessarily about the, the gruesomeness of Judas's death, but it's tying together this thread of what God is doing in the Old Testament and what God is doing in the nation of Israel and what God is doing through David and drawing this straight line from the Holy Spirit working in, in the mouth of David all the way forward to Judas and how the Holy Spirit is going to be working uh, right here in the book of Acts. And then we get this very, again, this very confusing thing. This casting lots thing. And some of you are like, I'm, I'm more confused about why um, Joseph has three names. Good question. I don't know. Is it Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice, depending on, you know, like his work name or his family name? Good question. Don't know. And this becomes this question, and I, I had asked Janine about it, Janine uh, Brown, who was one of my old professors who was here in September. And we use this phrase, well, that's a biblical thing, which, which causes us to scratch our heads and say, well, what exactly do we mean by that phrase? Well, it's biblical. Do we mean 
it happened in the Bible, therefore it's acceptable? Do we mean it's a biblical concept, but maybe it didn't explicitly happen in the Bible? Do we only use that phrase when it's something that happened in the Bible that we like or that we want to use in our lives? We asked this question last week. Is this event descriptive or is this event prescriptive? Because the whole casting lots thing can become very uh, tenuous. And we, uh, we made the joke, okay? <laughs> the joke was made. Like, did they just like have a magic eight ball and like pray, Holy Spirit, work in this magic eight ball? Who should we pick? Should we pick justice? Nope. Okay. Matthias it is. That was much funnier in my head and in our conversation. But it was this ancient Near Eastern practice of how do we decide uh, on a thing? How do we decide on a person? Jesus' uh, clothing, they cast lots for his clothing. So, you know, there's some speculation around this idea of having colored stones. And so it's kind of like a vote. Other speculation is that it was kind of like a dice. And so, or a, a coin flip. It's like, okay, Justice, your heads, Matthias, your tails. We know tails never fails. Bingo, Matthias it is. We have our winner and we prayed about it. Therefore, it's good. You have a question or just a statement? Yeah, I don't really know um, because it's interesting. We conclude Luke with the, the casting of the lots for Jesus' clothing, which tells us that casting of lots was not a Jewish thing. It's not like only Jews cast lots. It was more of a cultural thing about how do we make decisions for things. And so, again, here, we want to be careful just because it happened in the Bible. We, we want to be careful on saying, well, they did it, therefore we can do it. As long as we pray in advance, then, then it's going to work. As if prayer, again, is this like, you know, get out of jail free card of any behavior we do. I, well, I cast a lot, I flipped a coin, and it was this, therefore it's God-ordained. And so as we walk through the, the story of, of Acts, we're going to come to these events. And we did, you know, we did certainly back in Judges and say, okay, this, I know this is happening. What do I do about this? And is this trying to communicate what happened or how things should happen. And as Janine and I kind of concluded, this is more of a what happened kind of thing than a how it happened kind of thing. Or this is more of a what happened kind of thing versus a what should happen. So it's more descriptive than prescriptive um, on that. So, all right. I wanted to give you guys uh, some extra time. I gave you at least one extra minute. Uh, so I guess that's a win. Yes. Oh, we have a question. <laughs> yeah. Is it biblical to play rock, paper, scissors or Rochambeau for you that play that? Um, yeah. I mean, we, we have the, now, now I'm going to run out of time. We have this kind of uh, joke uh, in pickleball. If there's ever a question on a call, you just replay it. And Brett was like, oh, pickleball. Yes. 
what were you going to say? Uh, speaking of being devoted to things. Um, and then it's like, okay, that was a line. Okay, uh, question, speculate, next guy, replay, hits it in the net. Oh, see, the ball never lies. <laughs> it's like the most, I'm sorry, that's just the most ridiculous conclusion, but we say it every single time as if it is factual. All right, you can go to your groups. <laughs> 